Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today we talk to the editors of a new title for mothers. It's called Mother Tongue. All I can say is that it's certainly not your usual title aimed at mothers and kids. It's fun, daring, I like it. Also on the show, Monaco's Toronto bureau chief, Thomas Lewis, spoke to one of the most celebrated news anchors in Canada, Lisa Laflamme. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next, here on The Stack, we head to Canada, where in a few weeks' time, the news anchor Lisa Laflamme will mark a decade since she became the first woman to become the full-time host of a nightly national news broadcast. CTV National News, with Lisa Laflamme, is the most watched national news broadcast in Canada. La Flamme has covered a huge range of stories throughout her career, from the war in Afghanistan to the Olympic Games to royal weddings. Monaco's bureau chief in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, spoke to her recently on how the role of the national news anchor has changed during her long career. Tonight, the climate catastrophe happening in real time, a blistering new assessment about the state of the planet. Unequivocal and irreversible. Human activities are making extreme weather events more frequent and severe. Humanity at a crossroad. Left behind as the world. My name is Lisa Laflamme, and I am the chief anchor and senior editor of CTV National News, based in Toronto. National News with Lisa Laflamme. Good evening. We begin with breaking news tonight out of China, where it's already Tuesday morning. A verdict has just been handed down for a Canadian facing the death penalty. Robert Schellenberg is one of several high-profile cases. Of course, there are also the two Michaels straining the already frayed relationship between Ottawa and Beijing. Well, I've been uh, a journalist for 34 years, and I started in radio and eventually into television. And for 20 years, I was sort of a national affairs correspondent in Canada and a, and a foreign uh, correspondent from, you know, covering war zones for many years and uh, everything from war zones to royal weddings, actually. And then 10 years ago, this Labor Day, it will be 10 years, that I uh, assumed the role as the chief anchor. And I took over from a man who'd been in the job for over 40 years. So it was quite an overwhelming change. Another entry in the history on COVID tonight. Canada is now officially welcoming fully vaccinated Americans in for non-essential visits for the first time since March 2020. The move, though, coincides with the sharp climb in COVID cases in the U.S., once again averaging more than 111,000 daily new infections. And look at Houston again, overflow tents to accommodate inundated hospitals. CTV's Vanessa Lee on the reopening reality. I had loved my reporting life. So this has been a perfect hybrid job really for me because I'm still on the road. Obviously, the pandemic has changed everything. But um, really, as an anchor, I'm still doing my reporting, 
we take the show on the road for every major story and uh, so it's been a it's been a fascinating treadmill to be on shall we say because the news cycle has never been more rapid i would say than it is these last many years it just feels like you turn around and there's another major story to tackle and it's been great though obviously i feel very privileged in this role that i have and do you describe lisa this melding of your reporting work and the work of presenting the news how important is that to you that you are still effectively a reporter at heart as well as being the the figure behind the news desk well they're so intertwined I, i couldn't even separate one from the other and that is the the key role of a national anchor certainly on a conventional newscast, you are completely hands-on and the senior editor of the show also. And everything that comes out of my mouth, I have had a hand in the writing of it. And that also is a result of my many years as a reporter. I know what I mean. I, I know how I can best express something. And the viewer sees the very last thing I do in the day which is present the newscast but all the work that goes into it all day long from first thing in the morning is the part nobody sees <laughs> sort of the dissecting of the news stories and the putting it in context and then presenting it I find that I love this job also because I can tackle sort of the 12 top stories of the day I mean on average we put about 20 stories in the show and you know it's just you're always trying to put it in context help the viewer put yourself in the mind of the viewer how are they interpreting this how can we make it more digestible because these issues are so complex and in television news you really have to learn how to write tight we don't have the luxury of uh, you know a thousand word columns or articles so it's a it totally different skill actually because i was so mobile for so long it was obvious in the very beginning that i wasn't going to be very satisfied to just be covering something from afar so from day 1 as i said before we take the show on the road and we can do that now with the technology with I would say four people. We can do a whole newscast from anywhere. We've I've done it from Erbil, Iraq. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now we were only two people. So I think that for me personally, I've had this great support from my bosses that say, yes, this story is important enough that the whole show should come out of there. It isn't just optics. It allows me to actually be reporting on something and if the viewer turns on the newscast at 11 o'clock at night and sees that we're you know somewhere it obviously is a message this story is hugely important so important that we want to give more of the show to its um focus and um so i think that's just for me how i've been able to pull this off for for 10 years because i still have the right and the ability to travel and if i didn't that i think it would be more difficult you may agree that you hit rough waters in october when you ended in a minority government so if we look at this tumultuous year 
you started in a majority government. You mm -hmm. end 2019 in a minority. Give me your perspective on where you personally think you went off track with Canadians who view you so differently today than they did when this year started. I think in the conversations I've had with people during the election and since the election, they still very much want the same things. They want to see a government that has their backs. They want to see a government that's fighting climate change. They want to see a government that's keeping people safe uh, and strengthening gun control, which are all things that we're going to be doing. And yes, the minority context means we have to do it with more collaboration with other parties. We have to uh, look to the provinces to make sure we're moving forward in the right way. But I think that's, that's, that's something that a good government should do in any case, and it's certainly something we're going to be doing. But what do you point to for the slide from majority to minority? Oh, I think we're, we're looking at a rise of populism around the world. We're looking at, at challenges in electoral circumstances. Uh, we're looking at lessons that we learned as a government. I think one of the things that we look at is we were able to do an awful lot of really, really big things. Uh, during during our first four years and we weren't always able to get that message out we weren't you know always able to have Canadians notice and understand uh, the things we did. you have Lisa interviewed every Canadian Prime Minister since the the 1990s I believe how do you go about approaching an interview with the sitting Prime Minister are you looking for an answer that will give you a clear news line or are you looking to shape the conversation that might be a little longer lasting, more universal in its way? Well, obviously, I'd love a little uh, breaking news in there. I mean, if you can get the prime minister to flip flop on something or uh, give you something that you, you didn't already know. It is a challenge interviewing a prime minister because they're masters at the talking points and the goal for me is to try to crack that and get below it. And I say below it intentionally because there's so much we are not allowed to know. It is the instinct of the politician to, to tell us like just the veneer of something. And I, I do a massive amount of research, I have to say. I also do a role play with my producer where, you know, I'll be the prime minister. Here's how he's going to answer this. Let's go at it this way and maybe we can get more so it is a big deal and if you come out of it and you feel like nah, didn't really make news it feels kind of like a wasted thing if you can't get them to you know and the other interesting thing about interviewing a prime minister inevitably I will be the viewership goes right down the middle half the Canadians will hate me because they think you went way too hard on him. And the other half will hate me because they don't think I went hard enough. So it's a little bit of a no win situation, especially now we're gonna be launched into an election campaign in this country and all of that is going to come back to the fore. And you know, we, we basically, in a case like this, you can put the record the prime minister's own record before him and find those contradictions. So it really is just research and living, living the story as we do day in and day out, you know. A story of enormous consequence here in Canada over the past few weeks has been the, the grim discoveries of the remains of Indigenous children on the grounds of former residential schools across the country. How have you at CTV National News approached those stories? What is very profound in my mind right now is, is 
one of our indigenous reporters, Kreesen Ajgute, and he is from, that is his home nation, First Nation, Kawasis, where they've just found the remains of 750 bodies. And it's been incredibly profound for me to be able to ask a colleague. It's so different when this is a colleague who grew up there, he played on that field, which is a graveyard. So that's very present in my mind right now. And I think that is something we have a bit of a dearth these days in, in listening, especially on something like the indigenous story, because it is something tragically we were not taught. I was not taught in school, in the Canadian school system. And so, if anything comes from this, let's just hope it's a change in our education system. And I don't know, on a little level, I feel like in these interviews, I hope we're educating our viewership, you know, that we have a very large viewership. And, and I mean, they tune in because they want to know, they want to better understand things. And, and this one is complicated. And certainly for the Catholics in our viewing audience, that includes my mother. <laughs> it is a difficult story. There is a lot of defensiveness out there. And we are, we are constantly, I am constantly trying to find the balance and where we can take this in the future. And of the international stories you've covered, Lisa, during your career, and there have been many of them, are there any that stay with you perhaps particularly profoundly in any way? Oh, it's always the humanity of it that that stays with me. You know, Afghanistan, I went, you know, six or seven times in and out of Afghanistan and really found, you know, I was always sort of drawn to covering women and girls because they were the ones that wore the, the tyranny of the Taliban and they were the ones who we had the most hope for. In fact, I'm a um, sort of a surrogate mother to a, an Afghan girl. She came to us when she was 15. She's now 25. So, I mean, that was a result of that, of being there, knowing you just want to do more, not as a journalist, that is part of it, but also as a human, a human being. These stories never leave you. I can go back to 9-11 as far as the first major uh, international horror story. And I, I'll never forget it. I mean, I'll never forget it. You can see right now on your screen, symbols of American economic and military power came under withering strikes today in New York and Washington. Terrorists hijacking four civilian airlines this morning. They flew two of them into New York's World Trade Center Twin Towers. The cameras from many angles recording the horrific collisions. The towers were ripped open. They later burned and collapsed with terrible loss of life. Everything about the night it happened, driving to New York City, these things are very vivid for me. and. Again, I don't know. It, it, I think you also develop, because of covering so much bad news and tragedy, you definitely do develop, I have anyway, an ability to block out certain things that I, I, that I, I can't even process. Maybe when I retire, I'll have, I'll have the chance to process some of the things, but that's a lot of, a lot of years of covering a lot of heavy stories and um, things will just come up. I'll see something or read something and I'll be brought back to a moment in time 
Um, you know, the first time I went to Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the Americas, nobody ever talked about Haiti. And I went there for a flood. And I'll never forget it. The reporter from Agence France Presse said to me, we were on the back of some flatbed truck. And he said, you're going to want to put your scarf over your face. I didn't know what he was talking about. Sure enough, within minutes, I knew we round a corner and there are just bodies everywhere. Bodies. I mean, just from the flood, they'd washed in and the smell. You, that's one thing you never forget. And that was the first time I had physically been near such mass tragedy. And it is something you you just don't forget over over time. It never changes in your brain, you know. And the conversations around diversity have been happening in a pretty acute way here in Canada, as they have in other parts of the world over the past year or so. And that conversation has has focused in some part on on newsrooms in Canada. What is the the tone of that conversation, particularly from your vantage point, Lisa? It was interesting being the first female Monday to Friday anchor in this country. And that felt like something at the time. And just being a, when I was a young reporter in a male newsroom, I remember that very vividly, um, what that was like. So I, I do try to sort of, how can I explain this? I'm aware of what it's like to be in the minority and it's uncomfortable. And I think on that level, I can bring some empathy to the conversation and help in our ability to hire a more diverse staff. And it's, it's a commitment. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. It's a personal commitment and a professional commitment. And it's one I share with my team, our president and, uh, and our, our small team that make those decisions. So as I say, I, I do feel very privileged to be with the group of people that I'm with because we're very like-minded. And yet we debate. We have fierce debates on story structure and line up, all of those things. But on the fundamental issues, we are very like-minded and that makes a huge difference. I'm proud of our team because we've made serious efforts to be a more diverse newsroom, to get more voices from every community and country. We have a very international group. Now I have a female boss. The president is a female, which is amazing. My senior editor and executive producer is a female, but there's a lot more that has to change. And I hope for my nieces you know, and young women today, that one day they're going to see a complete mosaic in their newsrooms. And we are getting there, let's put it that way. And how pervasive would you say is the the spread of misinformation online in Canada at the moment? And does that cast a a programme like yours, a long-running traditional news format, in a particularly potent way right now in the light of, of slogans such as fake news, for example? I would say that fighting, combating misinformation and fake news has jumped to the top of my one of my roles because, you know, it, it's costing lives. Let's face it, if you take today, for example, people who are spinning myths about the vaccine, that is costing people lives. And on so many levels, we, there are nights I actually say, okay, well, today we've got to 
debunk four myths here and just come at it and tell the truth on the facts. So that's a huge issue today. And social media, for all the good that it can do, is also can be deadly. And um, it spreads, uh, what's the old expression? It sp spreads a lie faster than you can tie your shoes or whatever. So that's a ma major problem. It's a major problem. I think one of the reasons our viewership is still so strong is in a way because of the rise of social media. I think people are so inundated with various platforms. They don't know what to believe and what not to believe so that a trusted newscast of all these years, you know, CTV National News has been on the air, air over 50 years. I think that that actually matters more now than ever because that's all we have is trust. The viewer has to trust me to have deciphered fact from fiction and be presenting the truth. So that's a huge issue. And I, I, I really am always on a campaign against um, misinformation and also try, I feel like media literacy is as important as math. I say it all the time and I'm a broken record on it, but it is a fact. If we don't start teaching our young people how to choose their, their sources or consider their sources, we're, we're going down the wrong direction here. You know, we do not pay enough attention. Again, it comes back to education in, um, how to decipher fact from fiction and social media, as I said, is just capitalizing on that level and, it, and it's dangerous. It's particularly powerful to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award during this time of pandemic. To be honest, sometimes it feels like a lifetime that we've been covering it. It's really proven though, more than ever, the critically important role of good journalism national and especially local, so people know the truth about what's happening from both a health and economic perspective. I, I thank you so much for this Lifetime Achievement Award. I am so moved and I look forward to celebrating together when these restrictions lift. Thank you. And finally, Lisa, to look at the, the sort of nuts and bolts of a, of a live television broadcast, is there still something particular, the magic, if I can put it that way, of a live broadcast that is still special to you? Hearing the countdown to a transmission, for example, in your ear just before you go live to air, is there still a magic of sorts there for you after all these, these many years? I think I always have a, a level of it's not nervousness, it, it's energy though, obviously, because if you didn't, the viewer would fall asleep if you were a dead bore. But I, I still, with a major event, any live, like election night, you know, this is a seven hour marathon we're gonna be doing and you've got a healthy dose of energy just to bring your, your best game to it. And um, that doesn't change. I think if it did, I'd suggest it would be time to move on because I love that energy and I love the excitement of, a, of, of some major story that you're tackling. Obviously, it's depending on the story. It's also, we've had so many highly emotional stories and I'm a very emotional person. And I, I definitely, if I, if I have to do anything, it's sort of to keep the emotions in check because, um, some of these things, you know, you are definitely a, a, a human being first and a journalist second. That's it for us tonight. I'm Lisa Laflamme. For all of us at CTV National News, thanks for watching. Good night, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>
Lisa Laflamme there, Chief Anchor at Canada's CTV News Network, speaking to our Bureau Chief in Toronto, Thomas Lewis. And we'll have more conversations with other notable news anchors from around the world in the forthcoming September issue of Monaco magazine. And now we move on to a new title in the newsstand, Mother Tongue. The independent biannual magazine interrogates modern motherhood through stories about art, sex, politics, pop culture and food. It is certainly not your usual mum magazine. I had the pleasure to speak with the founders and editors of the title, Natalia Rackling and Melissa Goldstein. In a nutshell, I mean, Mother Tongue is a new biannual print magazine and we've sort of framed it as an interrogation of modern motherhood as told through stories about art and sex and politics, pop culture and food. And I think what's sort of important to say is that it's not a magazine about children or how to parent them. It's really a magazine about women who happen to be mothers amongst many other roles and sharing their stories across age, across circumstance, across location, and providing a more nuanced, more inclusive, more diverse perspective on what it means to be a mom in the modern world. And Melissa, perhaps also a less judgmental way of looking at motherhood, right? Because I feel some kind of mom's websites or everything, there's so many rules, you have to do this, you can't do that. And do you know what I mean? I think that's definitely a different angle you guys took. I mean, we certainly are setting out to be inclusive in that way. And also, you know, we noticed too that looking around, when it comes to moms in the media, they do tend to fall into these archetypes. You know, it's sort of inevitable. So it's like maybe there's moms that there's like green juice moms, you know, the moms that like, you know, drink the green juice and make everything homemade and, you know, live in beautiful houses. And then there's like the moms that drink wine all day, you know, so it's like, certainly that's not like a real thing. Obviously, we all know that that's not real. But I guess, you know, Natalia and I really set out to kind of, yeah, show the nuance, show the real people side of things. And also talk about moms, like Natalia said, in light of who they are as people versus just, you know, what they do in terms of parenting. And how did you two meet, you know, because clearly you both have the idea for the project, but I'm, I'm curious, you've both met in London, right? We were both living in London a little more than 10 years ago, actually, and we crossed paths briefly. We were both working for the, the video storytelling platform Nowness as editors, and then we sort of went our separate ways and, and we haven't seen each other physically in 10 years. We've made this entire magazine remotely across Zoom, across email, et cetera, you know, and we actually reconnected sort of during the early days of the pandemic. Um, we both have two young children, similar ages, and that sort of was the, the reconnection and also where this conversation for the magazine began because we sort of found ourselves in this completely new situation as so many mothers across America and the world did, where we were more or less, you know, overnight full-time, full-time moms, full-time teachers, um, and so much more. And yeah, so that's sort of, you know, that was sort of the starting point. And I guess it's somewhat ironic that we met at a very digital platform. And here we are 10 years later making a print magazine. <laughs> 
and of course i need i need to ask this because we have a lot of international listeners i mean if they are interested indeed in buy a copy of mother tongue which i think it looks great even even the cover image is so cool i wonder if you can describe a little bit that uh, that melissa Yes, absolutely. So the cover story is with a fantastic artist. Um, her name is Lena Similu. And actually, she's from London, too. I mean, not, now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking, God, we have so many sort of British connections. Um, but she is a fashion designer turned artist. She now lives in Los Angeles. And right now she is working in ceramics and she makes these sort of incredible vessels, which one of which is on the cover. And we just found that her work really kind of encapsulated the way that we were feeling like there's something about it that's quite visceral the sort of expressions of these vessels that she makes she's referencing african fang masks because she's biracial she her mother is cameroonian and her father is italian i believe but anyways lena really summed up for us a lot of things that we were trying to communicate you know and so, yeah, that picture of her kind of holding her work in front of her face in the midst of this kind of domestic scene really felt like a great sort of jumping off point visually for us. Oh, I should also mention that the cover was photographed by a fantastic photographer. Her name is Magdalena Lozinska. Oh, I liked many stories of, of the magazine. And I think one of the highlights for me, Natalia, for example, I love the story. Is America afraid of aging women? You know, so again, I was surprised. I have to say, because when you sent me the email before, I had a look at the magazine and say, "Oh, interesting. How is it going to be?" But I, you know, I'm not a father. I'm not a mother. I'm not a parent. But I was also very interested in the stories. I think it, it can speak to many people. The title. I think that's really a premise of the magazine. You know, as as two journalists, you know, if if these stories don't hold their own you know, not, not just for an audience of mothers, you know, then, then we've sort of, then we haven't, you know, that we failed as storytellers then. And, you know, we have received that, that very gracious compliment, you know, from even from some of our customers who have bought the magazine. And then we've had notes from a husband who said, well, I picked this up, you know, sort of just curious. And actually I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, that's also sort of in the visual language of the magazine, you know, you don't pick it up and sort of think right away, oh, this is for moms, this is about moms. And that was key for us to sort of, to make it something much more interesting and yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with what Natalia is saying. I mean, the idea is that it should be inviting to everyone because, you know, everyone does have a stake in motherhood, you know, and the very definition of being a mom is often debated as well. You know, like it's not this sort of strict definition of, you know, I raised this child by myself. You know, there are people who are moms in very different ways too. So we're cognizant of that and we're just interested in, it really is an invitation to everybody and we want it to be interesting to people. You know, like Natalia said, it's like, if it's not interesting to people who are not moms, then it's probably not that interesting, you know? <laughs> And who had the idea for the amazing title? Because I have a thing for magazines. Sometimes they're amazing magazines, but the title is a bit difficult. But I think Mother Tongue is so good. I mean, I, I'm very curious who, who actually had the idea. We went back. I think it was very much like a joint thing, right? Like we went back and forth on a lot of titles. And we kind of talk about it in the editor's letter. There was like a long list of titles that like for the day were, you know, we thought were genius. And then kind of in the light, you know, in the cold light of morning, we kind of thought, okay, no, that's a terrible idea. But yeah, I don't know. There was, it was sort of a moment of, 
I can't even think who a lot of this magazine has been that way where we can't even identify who it originated with. It's been such a sort of partnership and collaboration where we've kind of shared this brain. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that like, yeah, it was I think one of us. I think as Melissa said, there were a lot of false starts on the title <laughs> and there were some really horrible ideas in hindsight, but you know, what, what stuck of course with us with, with mother tongue was that we were sort of trying to present this idea, you know, can we talk about motherhood in a way that doesn't feel absolute? Can it be, you know, beyond just, you know, this sort of role that we're boxed into, can we sort of, you know, zoom out and make it a lens, a conversation point? And, and of course that was sort of, can it be a common language? And, you know, so it all hung together in the end in that way, but it did take a bit of time to get there. I mean, I think we both liked that the sound of it didn't sound sort of sweet and easy and, you know, it sounded a little bit badass, which we really liked, <laughs> which some people have not liked, you know, but um, it's funny. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. And then for some people who have, a, who have an idea of what they're looking for, it's sort of a good edit. Like if you don't like the title, maybe the magazine isn't quite for you. <laughs> That was Natalia Rackling there and Melissa Goldstein from Mother Tongue. Issue 1 is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. Meanwhile, you can always listen to the show again or subscribe to it at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. Amanda Lear with Mother. Look what they've done to me. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.